Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We're 18 months into the COVID-19 pandemic. Just about a year ago, we had an episode trying to gauge what would happen with fall sports. To date, it's been the most downloaded episode of this podcast. As we see surges continue to happen around the country and around the world as the Delta variant spreads, we thought it would be a good idea to revisit where we are, lessons learned or not learned, and what the sports world may be doing for this next sports season. I've brought back our pediatric infectious disease expert, a pediatric cardiologist we've had on before, and a Big Ten team physician we've had on before. I'm looking forward to this discussion. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I'll do some quick introductions. Dr. Jason Newland is a professor of pediatrics and a pediatric infectious disease specialist at St. Louis Children's Hospital, and he served as a member of the St. Louis Sports Medicine COVID-19 Task Force. He has been a regular face in the media and has served as a consultant around our region regarding sports and the virus. Dr. William Orr is an assistant professor of pediatrics and director of the Exercise Physiology Lab at St. Louis Children's Hospital. His current research focuses on the value of exercise testing in pediatrics and program development and introducing new technology for testing. He has also served on the St. Louis Sports Medicine COVID-19 Task Force as our pediatric cardiology consultant that helped provide guidance for allowing a safe return to sports for young athletes during this pandemic. And finally, Dr. Andy Peterson is a clinical professor of pediatrics, a sports medicine physician and head team physician for the Iowa Hawkeyes, who has had quite a last year managing the Big Ten team through the ups and downs of the sports medicine COVID world. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having. Yeah, terrible to be here, Mark. I wish we'd never talked about this again. <laughs> I agree. I was hoping that we wouldn't have to do one of these again, but I felt it was ripe to talk about things again. We'll start with you, Jason. So I'd love to hear on your take where we are with the Delta variant, what we're seeing with kids, because you probably have the biggest pulse on this. You know, I know we get regular updates from the Children's Hospital that it's full. We're getting what we feared in the winter when we were concerned about flu and COVID hitting at once, but instead now we have the out-of-season RSV and COVID infections. So let's talk about that a little bit. The Delta variant is what is in the United States, that if someone has COVID-19 right now, it's the Delta variant. That data is based on most places when they do any sequencing of the virus, find it's Delta. And I think that makes sense in the fact that this variant of SARS-CoV-2 is 1,000 times more transmissible than the original virus. And I can tell you firsthand that when this virus gets into a house, everybody in the house usually gets sick. Even some vaccinateds will get sick with this. It's just more transmissible. There is no doubt that that increase in transmissibility has led to more children being sick. And therefore, with more children being sick, more children are being admitted to the hospital. I do not believe, and a lot of my colleagues around the country have stated the same, that this is more severe. I think in the end, we'll find that it's the same severity as original COVID-19. We're just seeing more people get it. As we here in St. Louis are seeing the surge, because we have some number of our population is not vaccinated, we're continuing to see this in children, especially in those who are unvaccinated. This pandemic currently, the pandemic surge currently, is due to the unvaccinated, I should say the willingly unvaccinated at this point, besides those less than 12. And how that's going to translate to sports, I think we've learned a lot in the previous year about what was safe and not safe. And I I think that outdoors has always been safer. And now we do have a little bit more transmissible virus. But if we think about the areas that we're at risk, 
in our sporting environments like locker rooms, team dinners, and those things. That that's the same. I'm not convinced that the actual playing of the sport on the outdoors, playing football or soccer, those is greater risk. Now maybe a little, but I'm feeling pretty confident about the outdoor sports. The indoor sports is another thing. We should have, at least in our older population, some vaccinated. The more we can get everybody vaccinated that are playing sports, that are vaccine eligible, I think the better off we are. Well, I'd love to talk with you more about that. And I, I know we will just talking about what we think about transmissibility in sports, because there have been definitely some conflicting studies that have come out, including recently, of people suggesting that sports were the big culprit, youth sports in particular, for some of the spread in some of the areas, which is totally opposite of what we found with what we were doing in, in researching this in, in our areas. So we'll touch on that a little bit more. Let's switch a little bit to the heart. William, where are we now with the heart and COVID and athletes? That's been the big bugaboo here and the thing that we've obviously had to do all of our screenings for. We still do recommend screenings for. We talked last about eight months ago. Do we have any clear ideas about the cardiac risk from COVID in our young athletes at this point? I would like to think that we do have a little bit more clear picture. And definitely still, I think the heart is is one of the biggest concerns because it's it's you know, the late cardiac findings that people talk about that can get cardiac manifestations, dilations, change in their systolic function, coronary artery changes, myocarditis, all those things have been reported in these severely ill kids or the kids that have this delayed inflammatory syndrome, the MISC. I I think the heart still remains kind of at the top of sports screenings and what people are, are scared of. But It definitely has become more clear. I I think if you've been keeping up with the literature over time, the return to play guidance we've seen come out in the literature has gotten a little less conservative. I say that, but I I still think it's very important for the kids that are severely ill and the ones that were hospitalized with MISC to still follow the myocarditis guidelines. But there have actually been some very important data that has come out. And if for one of them in particular. So in April of this past year, there was an article that was published in Circulation, and Circulation is one of our higher impact journals in cardiology. And I know Andy's probably seen this and talked to a bunch of people about this, but to my knowledge, this is probably one of the largest multiple institutional studies looking at young athletes. And they took about 19,000 collegiate athletes from about 42 colleges and universities. And they enrolled athletes from around September 1st to December 31st of last year. And of those athletes, around 3,000 tested positive for the SARS-CoV-2 infection, and the mean age was about 20. The primary aim was to look at the prevalence of cardiac involvement in these collegiate athletes. And also there are some secondary aims like how well can we use cardiac MRI for screening tools and that kind of stuff. And so what they found was that there's actually a very low prevalence of myocardial involvement and only about 21 of the athletes, so about 0.7% had myocardial involvement. They claimed they had no adverse cardiac events with a mean kind of short-term follow-up of 130 days. So that is, to my knowledge, one of the largest studies. Now, we don't have a similar study that size in younger kids and high school students or younger, but we also know that those kids are also probably a little at less risk. If you look at some of the other guidelines, I mean, even the American Academy of Pediatrics, they've kind of toned down some of their guidance as to what needs to be done before letting these kids go back to play. When we first started, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence. Everyone was using their best knowledge and and definitely erred on the side of caution. But now what we've seen, and we've been able to kind of tailor things, is that now they don't have to do necessarily as much. They're still 
three big categories of patients, but I think we're able to get kids back to playing sooner and with more confidence that they'll be safe. Bill, I'd like you to comment a little bit on how the data from the Dresner Bagish study conflicts with what we're seeing in the Big Ten. You know, Kurt Daniels' study that was in JAMA Cardiology, we were seeing somewhere around, you know, almost 3% of our student athletes who tested positive for COVID tested with evidence of myocarditis across the Big Ten. And that's also a large cohort, you know, almost 1,600 athletes. You know, one of the things that came out of the project done in the Big Ten is that we had like 37 athletes across the conference that ended up having myocarditis. But only five of them would have been caught if we use a symptom-based screening method. And a lot of the colleges that were enrolled in the NCAA registry that Bagish and Dresner led, those colleges were using symptom-based screening regimens. So, you know, I, I feel like the data coming out of that project was was really reassuring, and the data coming out of the Big Ten is a little less reassuring, especially in terms of how we use more advanced imaging tests and how we think about screening people for myocarditis. I think you bring up. An awesome point is that we still are using our best judgment to make these calls. And yeah, totally. I've seen that study. And then, you know, a few months later, another study will come out making it seem like, oh, it's not as bad. But I mean, realistically, I think we have a little bit more knowledge of what's going on. I think overall, maybe we could be a little more reassured on which patients to send for an MRI, what to kind of watch for. But ultimately, I know for a fact, and you can comment on this too, that institutions are going to kind of vary a little bit across the country on what they do and based on maybe even what sport the athletes involved in and the budget for that. Definitely collegiate athletes are going to have more access to things than the high school level athlete. It remains a challenge for sure. Jason, I'd love you to pop in on that one because, you know, we've talked about this before on one of the episodes as, you know, we're screening because it's the new virus. We're looking for this stuff. I'm just out of your own kind of educated opinion, I'm not holding you anything here. Do you think that really probably the risk of myocarditis is truly higher with SARS-CoV-2 compared to probably other viruses that are out there that we just, you know, again, now we're talking about asymptomatic individuals here that we're finding on studies because we're actually looking for it. I'm just curious your thought. You know, the one thing about this virus that has been intriguing that we've learned a lot over the past year is that, you know, it really likes endothelial cells. It likes these cells that are along in hearts, along the boards, and it creates an immune response that has been very shocking to virologists and clinicians. And I think that, you know, look at multi-system inflammatory syndrome. Four to six weeks after you have a, a mild to asymptomatic infection, all of a sudden you have this inflammatory syndrome that likes the heart, mind you. I mean, Billy can tell you, we've seen kids that were super sick needing blood pressure support. So to the question, there is other factors that suggest that, yeah, this virus might kind of like the heart more than others. And, and I will tell you, Andy, I was, you know, we are using the Big Ten data, especially when we talk about the relationship of vaccine, right? Think about vaccine. And we learned about this potential association of eight per million, or if you look in the young adult male, especially it may be 40 to 50 per million versus if you look at your guy, that's big 10 study where it could be, you know, 23,000 per million getting some inflammation of the heart. I think that now, obviously there are some differences, one, the symptomatic versus not and these sorts of issues, but you know, I think it's probably more real than we were hoping it to be a year ago. And and I think the evidence is there that, you know, this virus, it's bad. And, and this is one of the places it likes to be bad. 
It's funny listening to people talk about this, right? I mean, you know, our, our study found, I found the number is 2.3% of our athletes who tested positive for COVID ended up developing evidence of myocarditis. Some people look at that data and say, oh, that's super reassuring. They didn't have anybody die and only 2.3% of them developed myocarditis. The other side of that coin is, boy, 2.3% of any population getting myocarditis is terrifying, right? And I, I feel like reasonable people on both sides of the argument are looking at the same data and coming to very different conclusions. Sounds like we've been just talking about the virus this whole time anyways, right? It's, it only kills so many percent, right? It's, it's you know, the rest. It's, it's that flip of the coin. We can have either way. It's, it's no matter how we look at it. Uh, it's the lovely part of this pandemic. But, you know, Andy, college sports were, were rock last year. We take care of a Division three school with Washington University. It was, it was a wash for us pretty much for competitions until spring. There really wasn't anything. We tried to hold out with WashU trying to find competition, but they just kept dropping like flies. And then eventually there wasn't anything that was available. So really pretty much winter sports, fall sports were, were a wash. There was definitely some success with spring sports as it rolled around. You know, we're heading for plans for full season now. You guys had a different experience, obviously, with... You had football for fall, but none of your other sports, which we could have all sorts of discussions about that logistics there. But, you know, what's your experience over this past year? Where, where do you think we're heading for this 2021-22 season? So, so first of all, I think the public perception that we didn't have any other sports in the fall is woefully misguided because everyone was on campus. Everyone was training. Everyone was going full speed, right? Everyone was preparing for their season, even though they, they weren't playing. So yeah, the only competitive season we had in the fall was football, but boy, everyone was on campus. Everyone was training together. Everyone was doing kind of all their, their normal stuff. Last year, we had just over half of our student athletes test positive for COVID at some point. 605 student athletes, and we had 323 positive COVIDs over the course of the year. So just over half tested positive at some point. We had five cases of myocarditis. We were busy. We got shut down a couple of times in different settings. So wrestling team got shut down at one point. I think volleyball got shut down at one point. Baseball got shut down twice last year because of outbreaks of, of COVID. We did manage to play a full football season, but then we made it to a bowl game. We were you know six and two going into bowl season made it to a bowl game and uh, we're supposed to play Missouri and they had a COVID outbreak. So we ended up playing in our, didn't end up playing in our bowl game. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it was a lot of struggles just like hurting cats like over and over here. One thing that was good about last year is at least the rules were clear, right? The Big Ten had very robust policies and procedures. We knew exactly what we had to do. The Big Ten has since lifted those rules and it's reverted to institutional control. And now it's the Wild West. Every institution across the Big Ten is doing different things, and we're dealing with different regional laws, guidance, executive orders from our governors. You know, here in Iowa, we can't mandate masks because we have an executive order from our governor that forbids us from requiring masks. Ohio, Ohio State, they're dealing with a law, an actual law that was passed through their legislature and signed by their governor that prevents them from doing asymptomatic screening tests. So we're, we're really doing very different things across the entire conference at this point. And, you know, I, I look at our protocols. We've got some of the most lax COVID protocols in the conference, to, to be honest with you. And some of that is because we're hamstrung by different rules. But then, you know, right up the road at Northwestern, they got some of the most robust, right? I mean, you know, they're testing people three times a week. Even their vaccinated people are getting tested. They have a vaccine requirement, really aggressive follow-up and contact tracing. You know, frankly, we're not doing much of that at all. So I, I kind of wonder when it comes from time for Iowa to play Northwestern, if they're going to balk at playing us. Um, and I think we're going to be navigating an awful lot of those things during the competitive season. 
Or maybe Andy, Dr. Mianis is a better head team physician than you are. He is. He definitely is. <laughs> he is. Yeah. So Mark and I are both friends with the Northwestern head team physician, Jeff Mianis. Good guy, but very different environment. I mean, what they're doing yep. in Chicago is very different than what we're doing in Iowa City, which is different from what they're doing in State College and Columbus. And we're all navigating different circumstances and regional politics. Hey, Andy, real quick, of the half of those student athletes last year that, that were COVID positive, how many could you trace back to actually competition or the actual athletic participation? Yeah, remarkably few. So we actually were very robust in our contact tracing last year. Local Johnson County Public Health had a contact tracing program, and we didn't rely on that at all. We actually hired six contact tracers just for athletics. They went through that contact tracing course from the Johns Hopkins medicine and uh, we we did our own internal contact tracing almost all of them went back to household contacts things outside of athletics i will say we had a little bit of an outbreak in volleyball that traced back probably the locker room we had an outbreak in wrestling that that traced back to what was going on in the wrestling room and, and, and some travel but boy the vast majority of it was outside of athletics with the knowledge and the data that we have of the rate of rise right now and the concern that is the Delta variant is so much more transmissible, knowing that that many student athletes got it last time around. What do you think? I mean, what, what do you predict this time around? Well, I think the distinction here is important, right? I think the distinction of the athletic event or activity was not the place of transmission. That's why I wanted to ask that question of Andy, right? Because I think he knows he spent all that time. And that would have been our experience as well is that while we weren't doing near the detail work that Andy was doing, that's why I feel like his that data is super important, is that the activity is pretty safe. I mean, he mentioned wrestling, and I mean, that makes sense, right? If you have someone sick and they're all doing everything, yeah, you, 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 it's not, that's not surprising. Although but I all say other- the nice thing about wrestling is that it's easy to contact trace because yeah. it's, it's, I mean, dead serious. You know, people keep talking about the risks of wrestling. The benefit of wrestling is that you know everybody that they practiced and competed against, right? You just keep a spreadsheet and you know it, right? It's not like soccer or football where everyone has contact with everybody. Right. Well, I remember you saying this. I mean, and that's part of it. Look, these sports have some risk, right? And I would say that in wrestling, you could argue that, well, it's only one other person. Like, you can limit it to one or two people, really. I mean, if you want, like, you have one person you work. But but I think, Billy, to me, Andy's – depiction doesn't make me any worried about the sports. It just tells you where you got to focus and college kids are college kids. And I think that's probably what they fight with. Even when there's not a pandemic is what they're doing outside that actually hampers what they do inside the sport. And what do you think about, you know, just the prospects there with vaccination and that, uh, as far as the risk, I mean, obviously we know that there's still transmissibility there. So, but yeah, I think that's the thing, right. And the college athlete, and actually let's say our high school athletes, vaccination for them, you know, some would say is the way to really do sports this year is just say, Hey, look guys, just all get vaccinated. You make this a lot easier for everybody in the end. Now there might be some breakthroughs, but you're not going to get some major cluster or outbreak that potentially could rip through because it's just not going to happen with a a, a large vaccinated group. I I don't know if you guys have been following the NCAA guidance on this, but they uh, shifted a little bit in, in the summer guidance they indicated that if you reach an 85% vaccination threshold, 85% of your population vaccinated, that you could back off on your COVID mitigation strategies. You could relax masking, you could relax your testing. You know, we've been using that as a carrot all summer long to get more people vaccinated. And then what was released last week, they withdrew from that. So there's no longer this 85% rule from the NCAA. They don't really recommend a threshold when you start to relax COVID mitigation efforts. I would imagine, I mean, on the this is kind of a question both for Andy and Mark. So 
Mark, you have a lot of involvement on the high school association level within the state. How hard would it be to mandate something like that on a high school level versus Andy on the college level? This is so now I'm kind of I'm just now I'm curious. My curiosity is running wild. I'm I'm, I'm taking over a little bit. Billy, you, you do remember what state we live in, right? Yeah, I do. And that's <laughs> there, there. There's your answer to your question right there in and of itself. Well, the big thing is, is we, we couldn't we couldn't. There's no way that from that organization, that organization does not have the power. No state high school athletic association would have the the power to mandate in individual school districts. They, they just wouldn't. So that would never be able to come from from Misha for our state. Um, so I, I think that it's a wash there. And then it comes down to individual schools. I was actually pleased to see that my school district here, which was I, I think did a really good job last year, they had decided over the summer that, that masks was going to be optional. And then we got an email today saying that for the kids 12 and under, so basically our grade school, middle school kids were going to be required to have masks again, and then high school and up is optional. So I was pleased to at least see that, that they're moving in that direction just you know based on where we are in our community right now. But In the Big Ten, six of the schools have vaccine mandates, and the remaining eight do not. Wide variation across the conference. And I'm sure it's the same if we looked at any other high power conference. I know, you know, just from my son going to Mizzou this upcoming year that uh, they don't have a mandate right now. They've strongly recommended that's their they've had a little bit stronger stance now, but still not mandated. Some of the schools in the Big Ten, it's only for athletics. Like they don't have a campus wide vaccine mandate, but their athletics is allowed to mandate vaccines. Here, here we're not. You know, we got guidance from our board of regents that we cannot mandate vaccines. However, WashU, as you guys know, does have a mandate for our students, and that would include our student athletes. So I'd love to have Jason's take on this. You know, with we've seen that with Delta, with the surge, it seems like in the other countries that have been ahead of us, it seems like this humongous rapid spike. And then it just seems like it just drops like a giant cliff. And I'm curious as why we're seeing this particular pattern with Delta. I mean, there was some pretty significant drops, you know, with previous surges too. And I, you know, who knows? I mean, obviously we can speculate as far as terms of, you know, people start to freak out and they get a little bit more anxious. I mean, I've heard all sorts of stories of people going in to get vaccinated in disguise. It's it's an interesting kind of world we're in right now. But is there anything about the virus specifically that we're, why we would see that kind of big drop off? It's one of the things about this virus is the whole time it, you know, it does things that we're not expecting. This sudden, all of a sudden, nothing's happening in India, right? It goes away. England's another one, right? That in the UK, they actually started opening things up as the Delta variant was really taking hold. And they said, let's do it. And it just kind of slowly, it, not slowly, but like you said, kind of just went away. We know down in Springfield, Missouri, sorry for those out there, Springfield, Missouri, the really epicenter that kicked off the Delta movement, the Delta surge in the U.S., it's now the last three weeks they say their cases are going down. Now, the question will come is that most people are surging as school is starting, and it's surging during school where schools are doing many different things with masks, not masks, which a lot of us believe masks has been the key to keeping schools safe. And we've heard already where places have already reverted back to masks because of the the cases and quarantines in there. So, I guess, Mark, the answer would be, yeah, it's possible it's going to drop, but does this other addition of a social gathering activity in our society, does that change that? So it, it'll be interesting. The last thing I will say is that the alpha variant was also fascinating. Let's all remember in March, there was the alpha variant that caused a forest fire of COVID-19 in Michigan. And everybody thought that's what's going to happen throughout the country. And it didn't. Like, so explain that. I mean, I think that's why you have to still have this healthy respect for the virus that it does some things that no one's expecting. 
it'll be fascinating when we look back at this in years and just trying to figure all this stuff out when we look at it and what really was going on in each of these areas there, if we ever figure it out for that Right, matter. as we're talking about COVID as just another respiratory illness that occurs in the summer and the winter because it decides to be biphasic during a year. I don't know. I mean, maybe hopefully that's not the case. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we will continue our discussion about sports and COVID for fall of 2021. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. The Editor Corps is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We're back with Dr. Newland, Dr. Orr, and Dr. Peterson, and we're talking about all things COVID and where things stand for our fall sports in 2021. William, you've had a specific clinic for post-COVID cases. You know, what have you learned from the patients you've seen there and kind of just athletes in particular that you've had in your clinic? Yeah, so I've had a, a variety of patients. You know, I tend to see the patients that were hospitalized or the ones that had MISC. Now, I haven't obviously seen every single patient or kid that has been referred to a cardiologist in order to return to play because that would just be too many for one person to see. So, Definitely, it's shared among the cardiologists in the region and, and within my division, and, and they kind of save my clinic for the most severe ones, which tend to fall in that uh, severe category where they're going to follow the myocarditis guidelines anyway, because they were probably hospitalized, had evidence, uh, maybe not MRI evidence, but evidence on an echo of dilation of their LV, maybe systolic dysfunction, elevated troponin levels, the BNP was elevated. And so, you know, clinically, we've deemed them as a myocarditis, or at least risky enough to kind of want to follow them. And I've actually been pleasantly surprised, I would say the vast majority of them have recovered nicely, which is reassuring, even at the two week mark, when they come from their discharge, most of them, some will have some lingering symptoms of fatigue, exercise intolerance, uh, which are kind of the main ones. Some of them have returned mostly to baseline. A lot of their labs have all normalized and most of their echoes, if, if anything was residual, maybe they have a little fluid around their heart still, maybe their function still a little borderline. Definitely by the six week, so a month after that, the six week after discharge, those have even continued to improve. Now we have had a handful of patients that we've brought at the kind of three to six month mark before letting them go back to play following the myocarditis guidelines and gotten an MRI on them, done an exercise stress test and even done a Holter monitor. And besides the rare few that had some persistent coronary changes, I think we've been able to get all of them back to play. And even that patient that had persistent coronary changes, you know, explaining the risk and doing shared decision-making, we were able to get him back to playing basketball last season. So, you know, I, 
I do think that it is definitely scary and the kids get very sick, but they do seem to recover from this. Andy, we, we talked a little bit earlier about sports and, and risks for different sports. Last year, your biggest concern when we talked about things is your, your biggest concern was rowing, and for interesting reasons there too, more so than that we talked about with wrestling. I don't know if that prediction panned out for you or for sports in general, but any of you, I'd love to kind of get your take on it. If you know, we going through a full sports here, anything that surprised you, either good or as a bad surprise with regards to sports transmission? Well, I will say that the more structure there is around a sport, the easier it was for me to take care of. And that may be very unique to my situation as a head team physician. Football, wrestling, baseball, fairly fairly structured sports, right? When we had outbreaks, when we had cases, it was pretty easy to keep track of it. Rowing is not like that, right? I mean, we've got 105 rowers on our crew team. You know, they kind of come and go. They practice at different times. It's difficult to keep track of who they've been around. Uh, our rowers had about as much COVID as the rest of the athletic department. We did have one of our myocarditis cases on our rowing team. Yeah, I, I'd say those fears were founded. You know, it was more difficult keeping track of everybody and the logistics of dealing with COVID in the rowing team was was really challenging. Um, you know, that said, you know, no one got super sick, right? We got reasonably lucky across all of athletics that we never had. You know, we had lots of symptomatic people, but we never had someone that had to be hospitalized or you know, had, had, had really severe symptoms. Um, but yeah, rolling was definitely one of the more challenging cases, uh, sports to take care of, you know, partly because it's a sport with 105 athletes and one athletic trainer, right? I mean, you know, you look at football, we got about the same number of athletes, but we've got five athletic trainers and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's completely different or you got a smaller team and, you know, one athletic trainer does the job, but it's really difficult to keep track of a team like rowing where there's a lot of close contact and, and not that many people keeping an eye on them. We had an outbreak in spring amongst our football and our um, basketball team at WashU, and it was more, uh, they weren't at that point participating or playing, they were practicing, but we we weren't able to track that back necessarily to stuff that they were doing in their their actual athletic endeavors. But that was that was our two team outbreaks that we had at WashU. Nothing, obviously, previous to that outside of individual cases that we had prior to that. But I'm guessing none of you follow Iowa wrestling super close, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a story. Uh, sure. so, so last year we had a uh, three-way uh, dual meet at, um, at Purdue and on the way there, we had someone get symptomatic that tested positive there. We ended up doing supplemental testing. Once we got there and had a couple more people test positive, uh, one of the teams we were supposed to compete against there canceled on us and the other one didn't. We actually competed there, but then we had like about another six or seven that tested positive after that. So a fairly good sized outbreak on, on our wrestling team. And so we shut down. It ended up being about a 10-day shutdown before we were able to bring people back in the rooms and our, you know, our, our positivity rate dropped to where we felt comfortable getting people back in the rooms. But then for the remainder of the season, all of our opponents refused to wrestle us. So our last three dual meets were canceled. So even though we were cleared, even though we had gone through our protocols, even though we followed the Big Ten rules and were able to return, you know, people were refusing to um, compete against us. But then you know, we went to the Big Tens, won a Big Ten championship, went to NCAAs, and won an NCAA championship. So, you know, ended up on a bright note, but it was a very concerning end of the season for us. Yeah, that's interesting. As far as the the reasons, did it, it was there any reasoning as far as why they didn't want to participate? It just because you had the outbreak. Or? I mean, I mean, no one trusts me as they should <laughs> shouldn't, right? I mean, that's actually. It's actually a fairly valid reason. No, I mean, you know, as you're getting close to, we, we saw this in a lot of sports, right? As you get closer to postseason competition time, mm. people get nervous, right? If you get knocked out, we saw this with North Carolina State baseball this year, right? I mean, you know, an outbreak during postseason can really just ruin your entire season. And I think people were leery of taking risks that they could mitigate. And one of those risks was wrestling against Iowa. And so we had 
few meets canceled. You know, I, I don't know what that's going to look like this year. So last year, if someone canceled because of COVID, it was a no contest. So there wasn't win-loss things related to it. This year, if someone cancels, it's a loss. It's a forfeit. So Big Ten rules have changed and it'll be interesting going through the season, especially for us as one of the schools with some of the more lax COVID mitigation rules in the conference. You know, it'll be interesting to see how you know, schools with more strict rules you know, see what we're doing, how comfortable they are playing us and, you know, what their tolerance for risk is. I will be fascinated to see what happens with the NFL this year if we do have actually an outbreak on the team and, and there's a forfeit and the financial issues. I, I will be fascinated what will happen there. Let's just go back like that, that we had an NFL season and right. the fact that you had outbreaks in teams, <laughs> right? Like, let's be clear, right? You had the Tennessee Titans who had an outbreak. They played the Minnesota Vikings. And nobody from the Minnesota Vikings got it. Like, I, I'll be honest with you. No, none of us expected that. And, and we all know the NFL was testing like crazy. So it's not like they were going to miss it. I think I, I'll say to your point, yes. I mean, that will be interesting because it was amazing that they pulled off everybody doing a complete schedule and moving things around. But it was also amazing that there was never a transmission from one team to another. That, to me, still blows my mind. I don't want to throw any of my um, Big Ten colleagues under the bus here, so I'm not going to give specific details on this, but one of the more, uh, and I I don't think this is public knowledge, the the vague details might be out there, but not the granular details. One of the more interesting clusters we had in the conference this year was in women's volleyball. So there was a, uh, a period of time where one team had a fairly large outbreak didn't contain it great and they played two other teams and in those in those games all of the front row players on the other team got it and none of the other players did so the front row players seem to be at very high risk of catching covid in volleyball competition at least based on that little outbreak i was gonna kind of switch gears a little bit andy this is super fascinating hearing you because you know for front hand like firsthand collegiate level what has been Switching gears a little bit, we're we talking about acute COVID a lot. What is your experience with like long COVID or long haulers? Has that affected any of your athletes at all? You're holding have, up a zero. Yeah, we no. have we have zero. Yeah, we, so we have no one with persistent symptoms. We have two people that have persistent cardiac abnormalities on their cardiac MRIs that we continue to hold, but we have zero people with persistent symptoms. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I'm I'm comprehending that right now because I'm wondering if it has something to do with how well trained and conditioned the athlete was before they got it or something. I, I don't know. It, it, it brings up a lot of additional questions. Yeah. Or dumb luck. Right. I mean, that's the thing about this, right? I mean, there, there, there's so much variation in what people are seeing with this. Like it might just be dumb luck on our part that we just got lucky and didn't have any people with long haul COVID. So let's switch gears to vaccines. Jason, I'd love your thoughts on this. I, I honestly, I would not have predicted one year later after our last fall sports discussion that I would have been vaccinated for seven months at that point. It just blows my mind. I think it's probably will go down as probably one of the most impressive medical feats in my career that I will probably remember. And I'll I'll give a personal testimony to the effectiveness of the vaccine. We had my daughter had gone to a camp down in Florida, you know, (laughs) perfect place to go, right? In early July. And she had been fully vaccinated for two weeks at that point because she, she got, as soon as she was eligible, we had her go out and get it. And she had two other people. There was a parent and another girl in the van that they were driving back. It was a group of seven of them and four of them were not vaccinated, another adult and three. Two days after they get back, one of the girls gets symptomatic, test positive. And then shortly after the other three that were unvaccinated all developed symptoms, none of the ones that were vaccinated had it, or we didn't test, none of them had symptoms. So 
I mean, that to me is just, you know, personal Petri dish there as far as the effectiveness of, of that and being inside an air conditioned van for 14 hours straight, driving back with someone who was probably spreading virus at that point, I'm sure picked it up down in Florida. No at doubt. The time. So I, I'm curious your take on it, just your thoughts on yeah. the vaccine in general. You know, I think it's a testament to science, right? I mean, the fact that we have such a robust scientific infrastructure that you have the National Institutes of Health and you have all these people that have been working on coronaviruses for years. And as a matter of fact, University of Iowa has some of the preeminent coronavirus researchers that have been doing this since the original SARS. And I was like, why would you be studying the common cold? Now you know why, right? I mean, and I think that it's a, it's a testament to our medical, you know, scientific community. mRNA has been looked at probably since the eighties, you know, people, there's an, a scientist here at WashU that started working on it in 1995. And just the fact it was put together in the way, and we had the technology to do it, get it into trials. Cause let's be clear. They did 70,000 people were in clinical trials before these vaccines were even approved. I mean, to do that in the amount of time and still follow two months after you received your second dose. Now, obviously, some things had to go right, like we had a surge when they just had done the trial. I mean, so you could see things early. 100% agree. It's And it's a remarkable, and it's remarkable that the effectiveness is over 90% for the for the mRNA vaccines. It's still remarkable that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has, you know, up to 70, 75%, you know, 70% effectiveness. Now, is there going to be a variant that potentially escapes it more? Maybe, but so far, right now, it's a pandemic of the willingly unvaccinated for most people. So yeah, I agree with you. It, it is one of the major tests, but it's also teaches us that we have so much work to do to help with those who are on the fence, who aren't getting the vaccine. Because there's those who are just, I'm not getting a period, but there is a gob of people on the fence, millions and millions on the fence. Uh, as a podcast listener myself, you know, one of the things that I uh, kind of took heart, I, I listened to Andy Slavitz in the Bubble podcast, and uh, he had a really interesting episode on there recently, where basically he was talking with someone who in the Republican Party, and um, basically was talking about how do you approach people who are hesitant to vaccine. And, you know, I think that what's worked effectively is is just having that, that honest discussion with them, not coming at them, right? I had actually just posted on Facebook. I said, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm here. I'm here to talk to you. You know, I'm no judgment. You know, if you want to get it, you don't want to get it. If you just got questions, feel free to ask. I had at least five people direct message me, ask me more information about it. I had several people tell me that, Hey, you know, just because of, we trust you, you know, we decided to go ahead and get it done. So that's why I get a little, I get a little antsy when people start getting really forceful about it. I, I, again, it's, it's still, it comes down to a decision. Obviously we'd love to see everybody get vaccinated if, if that was possible, but yeah, I think having Mm -hmm. that uh, discussion is good. Yep. Yeah. Support, support, have the conversation and keep doing it. They're going to do it. They will, they will do it. Yeah. I think it's remarkable. This has become a political issue. I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to be flippant about it. I mean, it's remarkable. You know, I'm a pediatrician, yeah, which is a fairly liberal base, right? But at the same time, I'm a gun-owning, truck-driving, motorcycle-riding guy in a a red state that takes care of football, right? But I also think that vaccines are the closest thing we have to magic in medicine, right? I mean, anyone who actually pays attention to what we do with vaccines, you know, has to be impressed with the things that we're able to do. And I, I think it's really unfortunate this has been conflated with politics. There will be interesting books to read when it's all done, just going back and people doing the historical part of this and chronicling this. And 
you know, it's, it's one of those things. I think if a lot of the younger people that I've talked to, you know, teens and stuff like that, I think they're, they're willing and able to do it. But I I think there's still just so much from certain parents that they're just not letting their kids get it that right now, at least that's what I've seen in the area. But then, then then again, I've seen a lot more people who have been very ready readily and getting their kids going with it. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, I agree with you. It's amazing how political we've got this, but I think it's just, you know, obviously a product of the environment we've been in and stewing for, for probably a good decade now. I do have one anecdote that'll make it feel, make it feel better. I have two yeah. student athletes who are completely unvaccinated otherwise, right? They've never gotten a tetanus or measles shot in their entire life, right? Both of them got the COVID shot. There you go. Cause it's real, right? I mean, they saw a bunch of their teammates pulled back. They know people who have gotten myocarditis. It's real to them, you know? Yeah, I'm I'm a pediatrician. I think I've seen two cases of measles in my entire life, right? I mean, it doesn't feel very real to people, but COVID at least feels real to folks. Yeah, and I, I actually had that discussion with a patient recently, an older patient that I had seen in my clinic, and we were we were just you know just having a conversation about vaccines in general. And I said, you know, I, I occasionally I still had some patients that I've seen in my office who were affected by polio, and they they have you know the one leg that's you know significantly smaller than the other, and have difficulties with that, but you don't, you don't see that on a regular basis. You don't hear people telling their stories about that and that experience. I mean, my kids, I think would probably laugh if, if I told them about the, the chicken pox parties that my mom sent me to probably in the fifth grade, you know, so we all get chicken pox before there was a varicella vaccine, you know, and that was a miserable experience. And I would hopefully never have to have that again if shingles ever comes at some point. But, but yeah, it's one of those things that it, it's just fascinating to see how much people, I think, just kind of put it out of mind if they don't have it. And I think that's probably where people are kind of changing a little bit is we are seeing people who are, it's getting more and more personal for them. And I think that's probably changing some people's minds too, hopefully. Here's a question for the group. One kind of question I get about the vaccine being a cardiologist is the, uh, you know, the rare adverse event of the post mRNA vaccination myocarditis. Um, have you all gotten that same questions? How do you guys navigate that question? I, I tend to try to obviously not cast judgment on anybody and just give facts and numbers and percentages and, and just talk about how many doses of the mRNA vaccine have been given and how rare it is versus actually getting SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 or MISC in pediatrics, then you have a much higher chance of getting uh, cardiac manifestations or myocarditis from that. So are you guys approaching it the same way or? Yeah, I mean, I get that same, I get that same question. Uh, although I would say I would, don't get it as much as the question about blood clots, you know, for better or worse, the Johnson and Johnson story about the sagittal venous thromboses that um, maybe were occurring with that vaccine caught the national attention a little bit more. And for whatever reason, I, I talked to a lot of people that think that these vaccines are associated with blood clots and they want to avoid blood clots. So there's, there's a lot of talking people down from that. You know, the myocarditis thing doesn't seem to have caught people's attention quite as much. I will say that an elite athlete, so when you look at our, this made a lot of, a lot of news, but we had a lot of people at the Olympics that were unvaccinated, right? A lot of our athletes weren't vaccinated. And, you know, among our elite athletes, it's not uncommon for people to feel crummy for a day or two after this vaccine, and they don't want to trade a couple of days of training, right? I mean, when you're at the elite level, every little marginal gain makes a difference. And they're not worried about the big effects. Like, I don't think these guys thought that they were going to get blood clot or get myocarditis, but they were worried that they're going to feel too bad to train for a couple of days. And at least in their heads, that's the difference between winning and losing. And I do think we're seeing that at the elite level some. Billy, I'll just say that we get that question, especially because of the, the teenagers and wanting to, the, that, that's a hesitancy thing that comes with that and infertility. Those are the two big ones that I probably get. 
And we just give the numbers. As a matter of fact, right before this, I was given numbers. And we use the Big Ten myocarditis. 2.3% is 23,000 per million, right? The overall risk is eight, and the highest risk is 50 per million. Do the math, right? I mean, you get acute COVID-19, 23,000 per million to eight to 50. And that, let's not even take into account that MISC, multisystem inflammatory syndrome, is thought to be about one in a thousand. The math just fits, right? Don't get COVID because you have a lot less risk of getting myocarditis than you do by getting the vaccine. So I think that's kind of the, I think that no, those numbers, every, everything's a risk, right? Everything you choose to do has some risk to it. You know, I think the, the benefit is, is definitely in the vaccine. You know, and I, I've had that same sort of kind of philosophy too, Jason, of just talking about just, you know, again, there there is a risk with anything we do in life, right? So walking out of my house, there's a risk of walking out of my house, getting in my car, there's a risk of, and it does not appear, at least from from my knowledge of the vaccine, that the risk of any severe issues is any different than probably any of the other vaccines that have ever been produced. And so I, I, again, I feel confident and safe with it. And I tell them I readily vaccinated my kids and I feel completely confident with that too. And, and, but yeah, there is a risk. I'm not going to say that there's not a chance at all of having an issue and acknowledging that. I think that's important. I'm going to play devil's advocate on the benefit of using numbers here. People don't understand risk at all. You know, they, they hear, they see someone that something terrible happened to, and they think it's going to happen to them no matter how rare it is. You know, people worry about being struck by lightning when almost no one gets struck by lightning. One of my favorite papers of all time, there's this concern about people being killed or being paralyzed playing high school football, right? But if you drive in your car more than eight tenths of a mile per day back and forth to football, your chance of being killed or paralyzed in your car is higher than it is on the football field, right? I mean, we accept a lot of these risks in our, in our daily life and we don't we don't think of them very well. We're all bad at evaluating risk. I mean, as a physician, I'm bad at evaluating risk. I see the patient in front of me and I worry about the weird, rare thing they could have, you know, and, and you know, probably over-order tests and do additional things I don't need to do because, you know, as a human being, I'm bad at evaluating risk. But what I do think people respond to is incentives. And when you tell people that they're more likely to be able to play their full season, they don't have to do this additional no swab test, we're not going to have to make them wear a mask in certain settings if they get the vaccine. People respond to those types of incentives. I would agree in that. But I will also say that when you're having to agree, we're terrible risk determinations. But when you're talking to the parent versus the that doesn't care if the kid's playing or not, maybe so in that regards, I think that as sometimes that there, some of them are going to make it. I feel like you, I think these numbers and that work has helped. There's no doubt people can at least hear numbers and objectify it to some degree, right? We're terrible at risk determinations. There is some of both things, but then, then, then there's the mandate, right? Like, and then the mandate piece, which frankly we know will work, but our States aren't going to do them except in our healthcare facilities. AAP guidance. There was an update that was recent and honestly, you know, we've been kind of hesitant in our state, of changing our return to play screening. And we can talk about that. We, we require all of our athletes who have been COVID positive to check in with their pediatrician, make sure that they don't have any symptomatic issues, that they're, uh, that they're good. And then we, we still put them through the basically seven-day, five-step return to play progression before they're cleared back. And, and we can discuss that. I'd love to get your guys' take if, if we still should be doing that. Curious, Andy, if you guys use that at the collegiate level still, or are you going by symptom-free, we get to go back and do what we want? Yeah. So we still, when we're bringing people in doing their pre-participation evaluation, we use the 14-point AHA evaluation in terms of their cardiac risk. We also ask them about their COVID history, right? We ask them if they've been vaccinated 
Actually, in Iowa, they don't have to voluntarily disclose that information. They don't have to mandatory disclose that information. They only have to voluntarily disclose that information. So we don't necessarily know 100% of the time. You know, but the, the tricky ones are people that have had COVID, had substantial symptoms with it, but then successfully returned to play, right? Because we know a lot of these folks that you know, had myocarditis were reasonably asymptomatic. They weren't, they weren't very sick. So we're taking the tact of not doing additional testing on, on those folks. You know, if someone has returned to sport and, and high-level exercise and isn't having any symptoms, we're not doing anything additional with them. The AAP guidance asks general pediatricians to do that, and they frankly see a lot less athletes th- than I see, right? And I worry a little bit that the current guidance is going to make people nervous and lead to some overtesting. You know, I don't know if, uh, and we can kind of speak to our Missouri experience because we've been pretty uh, out there. I know, uh, Billy, you have have been on a lot of the message boards in the St. Louis area and offering advice to pediatricians here and in our area as far as, you know, who really needs to get stuff. And, you know, we had our discussion earlier with some of our colleagues uh, in other areas of the country. You know, some of them were doing recommending screening EKGs for all their kids that they were seeing when they would come in. And we weren't necessarily recommending that. So Billy, do you have any kind of thoughts on that as far as do you think that that's going to be an issue? It's, there's always an issue. One thing I had mentioned before that maybe it's a little bit less conservative is the the ones that are asymptomatic or, or mildly symptomatic. At the very beginning of all this, the recommendations were if you've had COVID in the last X amount of months, you have to go in no matter what, and get evaluated and have like a physical exam. Now they say, yeah, have a conversation. And it even says like a telemedicine visit or a phone visit for those. So hopefully that will kind of get some athletes back in. It's been tough, right? Because even if you look at, if you remove COVID from the picture and you look at just sports screening in general, definitely the AHA 14 point element screen is, is on there. The ECG part is always a hot topic and a whole nother podcast in itself on whether or not it should be part of our routine screening in the collegiate athlete, in the in the high school level athlete at all. And so that one's tough. And so that one is still a recommendation for kind of the moderate symptoms, which they, they list out what they consider moderate symptoms. You know, but what I tell pediatricians with these talks that I've done is that it's probably better to have a conversation with somebody or to refer as opposed to ordering all these tests, which could lead somebody down a rabbit hole. And also, you know, we haven't touched on the whole healthcare billing and, and expending like expenditures. I also would agree that if, a, if an athlete's back to playing sports, you know, if they're doing that stepwise and have symptoms, you know, maybe they should reevaluate. But if they've been back to play, and they're not having any symptoms, hopefully that should provide some reassurance and not having to pull those athletes out just to evaluate again. I'll say, but one of those things that bumps you from mild symptoms to moderate symptoms is fever for greater than 24 hours. And how many of these kids had fever for greater than 24 hours, right? I mean, that's an awful lot of kids. If you look at our Big Ten data set, you know, we had 37 kids that had COVID. Nine of them were symptomatic. So it leaves you with 28 people with subclinical myocarditis, right? Of those 28 that had subclinical myocarditis, only one of them would have been detected on ECG alone. So, I mean, the utility of basic cardiac screening tests is pretty low, right? I mean, if you actually want to answer this question, you're kind of stuck doing cardiac MRI. And I don't think anyone in their right mind thinks that every kid with fever greater than 24 hours needs a cardiac MRI. Like we'd spend all of our time doing that and it would bankrupt our entire healthcare system. That's, that's bananas. 
that's where I would have hoped that over the last basically 18 months, we would have had some better kind of funneling down of that, those recommendations, because it really hasn't changed very much as far as what we're recommending, as far as how do we stratify or then also the the post testing. I mean, it's just the whole return to play progression. I mean, it's still just like I talk about with concussions all the time. The several step return to play process that we have is still just expert consensus from the Canadians. We've never really tested that that's really the valid way to get someone back after a concussion, but we use it and it's gospel. And now we have this seven day, five step progression for the heart that, you know, I don't know that anybody's really tested to say, is that really the best way? Do we really have to wait seven days? Can we get someone back in a couple of days if they had really mild infection. So that's why I'm a little, I'm a little kind of anxious about this whole next season coming up just from that standpoint, because I'm worried that a lot of kids are not going to disclose things and symptoms potentially. And we're going to have a lot of kids that would be participating just because they know that they're going to have to be out for seven more days once they're out of quarantine. Just to put an even worse spin on this, if you want to be even more pessimistic about this. (laughs) Sure. You know, our current strategy is, is self stratification. I mean, really, right? I mean, our biggest group of people that are not going to get additional cardiac testing are the people that returned to sport on their own after having moderate to severe symptoms and did so fine before they ever saw a medical provider, right? So Mm -hmm. we're, we're essentially relying on the population to guide their own return to sport. And if that goes well, then they don't get additional testing. I mean, that's a terrible strategy, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. no one in their right mind thinks that that's a good strategy. Lots to still think about. And amazing that we're, you know, a year later that we're still having some of these same questions and discussions. If we have a, if, if we have a third one, oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I was going to say podcast episode three of this rendition will be... Uh... It'll just be me crying the whole time. It will be crying, yeah. Oh, goodness. Yes, I, I hope that's not the case. Any last parting words from any of you as far as kind of takeaways or, or kind of future avenues that we need to be thinking about? So, so I said this on one of our previous meetings, but I'll, I'll say it again here. Everything that we're talking about is is middling around the edges. When we talk about the health and safety of our athletes, there's nothing more important than having smart, good, well-trained athletic trainers on your sidelines. They're the ones that can deal with medical emergencies when they come up. Yeah, it's great to have smart physicians around, but having those frontline people that really do a great job with our athletes every day is dramatically more important than anything we're talking about tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I think acknowledging that for sure. I think we need to acknowledge the fact of burnout for those individuals too, because this has been a really rough year. You know, we're all stressed and strained in the healthcare system. I'm sure you guys are probably in just as dire a strait sometimes with medical assistance and what have you in clinics where we're really struggling to keep staffing up in clinics too. Hands down kudos to all the athletic trainers out there who made it through this last year and are still sane and, and still loving doing what they do. So yeah, absolutely. I wholeheartedly support you on that statement. Yeah. And I, I mean, I want to say kudos to all the, you know, people like Andy and, and the big conferences that are, are putting out the literature that, you know, people like myself have to rely on because we don't have the funding or the kind of associations or anything to kind of do this similar thing on the high school level. So we have to extrapolate some of that data. So, you know, it's really helpful. This was this is actually something that we had talked about, I think, last summer is that we start to understand a little bit more once football came back. And I think we have understood some aspects of it a little bit better. And so I think that's super helpful that everybody continues to share what they've learned, their experience, just hearing what Andy's been doing and seeing has been super exciting and intriguing for me tonight. So let them play. (laughs) We were chanting that last year. (laughs) Absolutely. I agree. I'd like to thank my guests today, Dr. Newland, Dr. Orr, and Dr. Peterson for their time and wisdom once again, in our never ending quest to guide our athletes through this pandemic in the safest way possible. 
as we stressed before, I am truly hopeful that we are not having this discussion once again with another episode in one more year, but we'll see what happens. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We appreciate you taking the time to leave us a five-star review and some feedback. Thanks for taking a moment to listen. I truly appreciate it. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.